Hey folks, on today's episode of the Total Soccer Show, we're going to be doing some weekend reviewing with Mr. Ryan Bailey. Uh, Ryan and I talk the FA Cup, specifically Liverpool's draw with Shrewsbury, as well as Jurgen Klopp's comments after that game. We go deep on uh, Barcelona's loss to Valencia and how maybe both teams should feel slightly optimistic, although one slightly less so than the other. But there's also Bayern Munich winning big, Juventus dropping points, two over Surgent, question mark, Napoli, we shall see, and some U.S. men's national team roster updates. Lots and lots to be discussed. But first, I wanted to let you know that today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Robinhood. With Robinhood, you can invest in stocks, options, and ETFs right from your phone. You can even spend and earn interest on uninvested cash. Uh, that's a decent deal. Uh, and with fractional shares, you can buy stocks in any amount, including companies like Apple, Amazon, and Tesla, for as little as $1. And that's with no commission fees or account minimums. So whether you're new to investing and ready to learn or just looking for a better experience, stop waiting and join the 10 million Robinhood users right now. Listers can get started with a free stock by going to totalsoccer.robinhood.com. That's totalsoccer.robinhood.com. Disclosure time. All investments involve risk. This is not investment advice, a recommendation, or a solicitation of any security. Other fees may apply. Visit rbnhd.co slash fees. The free stock program is subject to certain limitations. Annual percentage yield APY on uninvested cash is paid by program banks and is variable. Robinhood Financial is, as ever, not a bank. Everybody and welcome to a weekend review edition of the Total Soccer Show. I'm Taylor Rockwell, and I'm joined by a man who would never go into the stands to kick someone in the chest. It's Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Tate. Fun fact: uh, the the incident to which you're referring mm-hmm. there happened at Selhurst Park, uh, of which I was a season ticket holder at, and that was the same stand I used to sit in. But it was a different night because it was the other lot playing that night. Sure, sure, sure. See, now I have questions. Now I have suspicions uh, because the uh, the moment we're alluding to uh, this weekend was the 25th anniversary of Eric Cantona deciding that kung fu was the answer uh, when he was abused slash uh, spoken to by Matthew Simmons, uh, depending on your perspective. Uh, in the moment that came to be known as the Selhurst. Park incident. Ryan, so you were there. What, what, why were you a, a season ticket holder at the time? I wouldn't say I was there because it was Crystal Palace, Manchester United. Ah. I was a Wimbledon season ticket we holder. Go. We ground shared with them. Ah. I used that seat in that stand when Crystal Palace were not using it. So uh, This makes more um, sense. I was like, oh, that happened right where I sit. That's fun, isn't it? This massive cultural moment. Was that like was that stadium particularly? Did it lend itself to that sort of moment in terms of like it, it seems strange to me that the fan was that close that he was able to be heard by Eric Cantona and that Eric Cantona was uh, that easily able to kick him in the chest? Yeah, I'd say you could get if you're an advertising hoarding, you could be you could shake hands with the player, you'd be right next to them because we used to go down the front while they were um, um, while they were training and get their autographs pre match. Would do that a lot, and also where Cantona kicked the fan was about ten yards from the bench. So he wasn't far away from the managers as well. That's interesting because I was reading an article about it where Sir Alex Ferguson said he like missed the entire thing. He didn't really see, hear about it till the next day. And then his first thought was like, oh, well, we've got to sack him. That's the way that's got to go. Uh, but that is not mm-hmm. how it ended up going. But Ryan, my question for you, uh, you seem to be like a fairly level-headed fella. Uh, nah. Is there something someone could say that would make you go into the stands that aggressively? Would it be like MK Dons are better than Wimbledon ever were? Would it be Oasis is overrated? What, what would get you that angry? Come on, Taylor. It's Monday. Let's not go there, please. You've already, you've already just poked, poked the bear twice pretty hard. 
<laughs> You're right. Pretty right, well, hard. I guess I'm, I'm maybe trying to avoid talking about other things in England because it was an FA Cup uh, weekend. Um, mm. There wasn't a ton of drama in the FA Cup. Uh, there were some strange results, like Manchester United winning. I'd say the biggest one would be Liverpool drawing <laughs> 2-2 with League One's Shrewsbury. Uh, that was probably the strangest of all, given that Liverpool were 2-0 up uh, inside the first, what, like 26 or 27 seconds of the second half, and then uh, Shrewsbury find a way back into it. Was, was that the result of the weekend for you, Ryan? I think it was the most significant result. Yeah, everything else seemed to go to form, didn't it? Everything else was a bit... I don't know, I think I've talked about this on this show before, Taylor, how... When I wake up on a Saturday morning and I see it's an FA Cup weekend, these days, I'm like, oh, I kind of wish there were Premier League games instead. Mm-hmm. And I know that's a cardinal sin to think that way. And I know I wasn't brought up to believe that at all. But it's kind of the way I feel about this competition now. And that's kind of a sad state of affairs. But, I mean, the, the Tranmere-Manchester United game, I was, I was watching that on Sunday hoping, you know, there could be an upset here. Look at that field. That's a real 90s, hasn't been tended to field. Phil Jones is going to be head-to-toe in mud after three seconds. And he was. That was great. Of course. And then, of course, uh, you know, Harry Maguire basically playing as a striker and uh, getting, a, getting in the first goal and getting, um, uh, you know, a good performance out of Manchester United there. Fulham uh, capitulating at Man City, no thanks to Mr. Ream, uh, getting his red card pretty mm-hmm. early on. And, you know, as I say, most stuff going to form apart from the uh, Shrewsbury, Shrewsbury town game. We need to talk about the pronunciation of that team, by the way. All right. How, how am I supposed to say it? So there's a big debate in the UK even of people who live in the town, as mm-hmm. whether it's Shrewsbury, how it's written, or Shrovesbury. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I've always been under the impression if you say Shrewsbury, you're wrong and it sounds like you're not from there. But even I've done some research and people who live there, it's, it's divided right down the middle as to how they pronounce it. So this, this is kind of town that these people live in. They can't even decide how to pronounce their own gosh darn town. Yeah, so I'm going to stick with Shrewsbury just to be, uh, I guess, <laughs> contrarian and difficult. Uh, although it sounds like half the town would agree with me, half the town would agree with you. Um, mm. In terms of like the, like the, the quality of the field, Phil Jones being covered in mud, uh, that sort of issue, like, this is a slightly strange way to begin, but is there a chance that like we're a little too pampered? That like I'm used to the, the – like, we've talked about it before on the Total Soccer Show that like the Premier League tends to have this like perfect color concept contrast where everything just looks really really lovely the field is always really bright green the jersey colors pop as a result and Mm. then when you switch to the fa cup you have the rougher fields you have strange camera angles because you're in smaller stadia you've got intermittent crowds it just tends to be less of the like aesthetic that we're used to you don't quite get that atmosphere and i wonder if that's part of the reason why that if you are a foreigner who didn't who didn't grow up with the FA Cup, you might not have that level of love for it. So you might tune in and just see like, oh, they're playing on a mud patch. This is ugly. It's already 2-0. I'm out. Yeah, I can see there's definitely an element of that. And I think when I, when I think back to even the Premier League in the 90s, by January, February, most stadiums, the field looked like that. Mm-hmm. Selhurst Park, definitely in, in the Cantona era, looked like that. And I, I have to say, I think Tranmere is a bit of an anomaly because I know Liverpool ladies play there and they've complained a lot about the state of that field, a lot. So, And I think that lawn care, I'm, I'm not up on lawn care technology, but I'm sure it's come a long way. Uh, at AFC Wimbledon, for example, where, where we play, the field looks really, really good. And that's helped by the fact that Chelsea's ladies team play there and they, uh, they help pay for it. So uh, um, I, I think that that kind of thing is going away as technology improves, right? And maybe there's an element of being spoiled by by it too. But I, I kind of like the weird camera angles and the and the quirky players who uh, who have uh, alter egos, which we'll get to <laughs> very shortly. 
Um, yeah, and I guess that one of the teams we're talking about apparently has an alter ego because um, it was what Shrewsbury in the first half, and then the first twenty eight seconds of the second half, and then it was Shrewsbury after that. Uh, that's how I'm gonna <laughs> understand the situation because, as I said, they go two nil down, especially that early in the second half. Donald Love, uh, of course, the former Manchester United player, is the one to score the phenomenal own goal. I, yeah. I I think it was too casual is what he was going for, but it's a cross in. He's trying to do the sort of passing it out of bounds. Instead, he passes it right into his own goal. And he didn't even really need to make a play on it because the Liverpool players had kind of held up. So he could have brought that down, turned and played it out. He could have just walloped it into the stands instead. A bit too casual. Maybe he just wanted to gift Liverpool uh, that second goal. That was a classic rec league finish for it me. It really was. That was something I would do. That's probably mm. I've done that before. It was disappointing. <laughs> I'm glad you've done that before. And then I felt like Liverpool, maybe their defense just felt sort of like, oh, you want to make mistakes? Well, we can make mistakes too, sir. Uh, because they were <laughs> all over the shop in this one. Lots of questionable decisions, failure to close down, uh, heading it into each other on multiple occasions. And even for the equalizing goal, uh, what I think it's Matip uh, fails to make a play on the ball, doesn't win the header, Lovren beaten in a challenge, and then it's, uh, it's 2-2. It was not the best of games uh, for Liverpool's defense. So I'm just going to say, like, overall, a confusing game for both defenses. Yeah, very much so. I think this was a, a really good indicator of how important someone like Virgil van Dijk has been for mm-hmm. Liverpool because where, where Liverpool really suffered in this game was the defense. I mean, the fullbacks wearing number 70 and number 76 on their yes. shirts. Not exactly uh, high-ranking in the squad. And you've got Matip and Lovren, uh, not exactly first-choice char- first uh, centre-backs, uh, playing together there. And Lovren, as you say, for that, for that equalising goal, he let uh, the score, scorer come completely through mm. him. It, it was just gave him a, a waving invite. Come on through, sir. Please, score. <laughs> and it was Jason Cummings who got that. He got the penalty before there. He showed yes. Nurse Steel to put that penalty away. That was very impressive. He's the uh, aforementioned player who I, uh, I must mention has an alter ego. Have you seen this? I have not seen this. Uh, I'm excited to hear about it. And I'm not surprised because he's got... An intensity about him. He got into it with Adrian on a couple of occasions. He has the kind of side of the head shaved, slick back hair. So I don't know which character it's going to be, but I'm excited to find out. All right, we'll strap in for this All one right, because uh, uh, there's, a, there's a video going around on Twitter. It looks like they're sort of staging a f- pretend hilarious wrestling match. Um, in It looks like the cafeteria of the club. Uh, Jason Cummings is dressed in a sort of wrestler's outfit. He has his uh, name written across his chest, his alter ego name, The Cum Dog. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> the cum dog. I, okay, and is he in character? Does he say brother a lot? What is, what is his approach to professional wrestling? I, 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 I suggest that you all seek it out because it's, uh, it's amateur wrestling at its very finest. But uh, we're getting distracted here. I, think I, I just want to throw point. out, though, this is how uh, Mike the Miz from Real World uh, became a professional wrestler. Is he had an, oh. like, an alter ego that he wrestled on, or like pretended to be on the show, and then suddenly he was a professional wrestler. So you never know. If, if, uh, if Shrewsbury Shrewsbury doesn't work out for Jason Cummings, then there's always wrestling, I guess. Well, that's fun, isn't it? But let's give full credit to Shrewsbury mm. here. I said Shrewsbury and said Shrewsbury. Uh-huh. Well, I'm doing it myself now. I mean, they're, they're a struggling League One team, as is the team I support, mm. who I've mentioned several times in this podcast already. And they're, they're basically the better than Everton, I think we can get here, because they're <laughs> playing a team that's basically the same, except for those centre-backs, as the team that faced Everton and beat them you know, pretty convincingly. They had six shots against uh, Liverpool's 11 here. They had more corners. They had four corners to Liverpool's three. They, in the second half, they created a lot of chances and they went for it and they forced a lot of decent saves out of Edrian as well, didn't they? they I think you've got you to give them real credit for making a match out of this one. 
you certainly do. They 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 forced uh, some decisions out of Liverpool. They forced some saves out of Adrian. They forced a replay out of Liverpool, uh, yeah. which Jurgen Klopp was obviously not too thrilled about. Uh, I guess the players had already been given the week off uh, previously, uh, so he's vowed to play only the kids. And I think he confirmed that he himself will not be in attendance. Ryan, do you, do you have an issue with that? Uh, I do. Really? Okay. Because I wasn't sure. We tend to not be very like hot takey uh, on this one, but this did feel like one where maybe I was sort of, when I first saw that, like, yeah, I mean, that seems a little strange that you're going to miss a competitive game, but I'm not too concerned about it. So where are your issues? And I realized we started this show, Taylor, by sort of uh, dissing this competition and mm-hmm. saying we'd rather be watching the Premier League. But at the same time, Jurgen Klopp, I think, has shown a lot of disrespect to the FA Cup by saying this. Fair enough, it, this this game is going to come at a time when he'd given his squad the week off. Um, this is the first Premier League, uh, in air quotes, uh, winter break that he's going to give his players here. So he's going to send out the uh, the youth coach and send out the youth kids to play this game. But I just think in doing that, Taylor, he's giving more respect for a break than the world's oldest domestic cup competition. Mm-hmm. Well, is, is does, that, that feel, does that feel right to you? I mean, well, I, I, I only, the issue I have there is that, like, is he doing that or is he prioritizing the Premier League and the Champions League and saying, we want our players rested, we had planned for them to be rested for those competitions, we hadn't really planned to have this replay, so we're okay with that falling by the wayside if it means we uh, win the Premier League and go deep in the Champions League. Well, yeah, that's exactly what he's doing, mm-hmm. but at the same time, he is disrespecting the FA Cup, isn't he? And and this leads to the question, I mean, this is going around quite a lot, and I think I'm going to write about this this week as well, of, of the idea of scrapping replays in the FA Cup, maybe even scrapping the League Cup, so that the Premier League teams can focus on, on their big money competition. Because you've got, I mean, where would you prefer, if you were a Shrewsbury, Shrewsbury, Shrewsbury fan, what would you prefer? Would you prefer extra time in this game where you'd have really good chance of maybe getting a goal because of how they were pressing towards the end? Or would you prefer a replay at Anfield just to get the money because you'll get 50% of the gate receipt there. It's, it's whether you prefer to try and go for glory or the financial decision of getting a replay, isn't it? And yeah. I would suggest that it's more exciting from a soccer perspective to have extra time to get it all done on the day and to let everybody move on. What do you think about that? To be honest, I, I'm, I, I don't necessarily disagree. I think I am, I am sort of woefully ignorant in terms of lower league, like League One, League Two teams' finances. Mm-hmm. Um, because like we were talking to some, uh, some guys from Tranmere, actually, or uh, from Tranmere Rovers, when we were in Baltimore. And they were just talking about like, some of the things they do, some of the coaching programs they put on, and how it kind of helps finance the club. And they, were, they threw out a few numbers, and I was sort of shocked by that in terms of what they need to survive and where they are with that. And not trying to say, like, Tranmere are struggling, but just to say that they sort of have, I think, issues that are representative of a lot of League One, League Two sides. And so maybe that replay is really good in terms of bringing in money, but I absolutely take your point with that said that, yeah, you would much prefer uh, like extra time, overtime, what have you, um, in that moment when you've got Shrewsbury at home, you've got their fans there, you've got the momentum, it feels like maybe this could be a giant killing, but now you're going to go back to Anfield with no Jurgen Klopp, with no senior players, probably without much of a crowd as well. So even though yeah. they'll get the gate receipts, I don't know how much money that will end up being, and it certainly won't be the drama that we maybe could have had this weekend. It will be a huge impact for a League One side. Like Wimbledon, for example, have the lowest wage bill in League One. Mm-hmm. And there was a, uh, a couple of years ago, we got a, a fairly decent FA Cup run, got to play Tottenham at Wembley. And that, I think it basically paid the year's wages. That's how, that's how big an impact that kind of thing can have. And I understand that Shrewsbury will be very happy with that and getting to go to Anfield, where they'll almost certainly not get a result, but they'll get some financial benefit out of there. But at the same, on, on the other side of the coin, I'd say... What if you'd have done the extra time, beaten Liverpool, got an all-time famous result for your club, and then maybe got 
another big game in the next round. You've got the potential to go on and get another game, haven't you? <laughs> you, you do, and I guess there is still that potential for, for one of these two teams uh, in the replay, but we'll talk about that <sighs> when it happens, maybe? I don't know. If, if, <sighs> if Klopp's not even going to be there, if, if Jurgen Klopp isn't there to watch the game, does the game actually happen? Can I? <laughs> oh, wow, that's philosophy. Wild. I'm going to have to sit here for a few minutes and think about that one. But while we do, can I just say congratulations to the Shrewsbury fans yeah. for having a pitch invasion after a 2 2 draw? <laughs> Wonderful. That's hey. what I love to see. Oh, and the you other fantastic thing, the other fantastic thing from this game was when Mo Salah came on, um, he passed the ball out to uh, John Matip, mm-hmm. who was, who'd come off the field. Ah. He, he was walking along the sideline, and uh, it, it kind of highlights the rule. You know yeah. that where a player has to come off where, wherever on the field they came off and walk round to the dugout. Um, that happened. He didn't have a bib on or anything, so he was just wearing his regular old Liverpool kit, and he got the ball passed to him, and he wasn't on the field. That I was wonderful. probably forget to mention this later on, but I'm glad you mentioned that here because uh, Paulo Dybala did the same thing in Juve's game and mm. went off on like the far corner and walked all the way around and seemed so disinterested in everything that was happening after he'd been subbed off that I found him to be the most captivating thing, not necessarily on the pitch, but near the pitch for like a good two-minute period as he slowly walked around. That rule change is a strange one in that, yeah, now you just have players sort of casually walking along the touchline, and maybe that's how they get into fan altercations, and we have an homage to Eric Cantona. There we go. And by the way, that's a damning indictment of Sorry Ball that Dabala walking along, not being interested in anything, was the best thing you saw. On an attacking free kick uh, with, with Juve, like trying to get back into the game, it was telling, I think. Maybe? Possibly? Oh I'm not sure. Uh, but Ryan, Ryan is not pleased by Jurgen Klopp's uh, disrespect for the FA Cup. Uh, another German uh, team, at least, who were maybe being a sl- slight bit disrespectful were Bayern Munich, handing oh. uh, Schalke a 5-0 loss. A comprehensive win for Bayern. Schalke did have some chances, but obviously when it's 5-0, not quite enough. And I'm going to say they were not helped uh, by their goalkeeper. Thumbs down to Alexander Nubel, or Nubel for handing, somewhat literally, uh, the game to Bayern Munich. Uh, Daryl pointed out uh, last week or two weeks ago maybe that Nubel has already agreed on a free transfer to uh, Bayern Munich once the season is over. He'll be out of contract, so they've kind of done the thing that they tend to do. And he sort of maybe already like already uh, was giving them some points. Who knows? I doubt it was Secret that Secret agent. Yeah, I like right? It. But uh, the, for, for the first goal, Cross comes in. He fails to handle it, fails to really make the right decision on it. Spills, ends up in the back of the net. But then he gets, I think, megged, albeit sees it a little bit late, but still gets megged by Serge Gnabry for the fifth goal. In between, had lots of issues dealing with crosses. And I think of your Schalke, who probably are already thinking, we've got to have the best game possible to compete with Bayern Munich, uh, especially with some of the injuries they're dealing with to then have your goalkeeper flap at a ball and concede one fairly early, fairly weakly, uh, I'm going to guess does not inspire. Yeah, definitely not. And I, I'll, I'll give you that. I'll give you the thumbs down. He also fought for at least a couple of the goals, but also there was some pretty clownish defending and mm-hmm. fumbling happening in front of him as well. And it seemed like a few of the goals for Bayern looked very, very similar to one another. I'm thinking maybe the first and third, if my memory yes, yes. serves me correct. And uh, that Goretzka, um, Golazzo, by the way, this is a kick through the traffic. That was very nice as well. Let's give him credit for that. But this is, this is an interesting result. I did expect Bayern to win this, but not quite by this margin, because Schalke recently mm. have sort of looked pretty... They've looked vastly improved, I'd suggest. I, I would say... Maybe they just play Bayern at the wrong time when Bayern are in imperious home form. They, they came here looking to, I suppose it would be what, Bayern's third de- home defeat of the season if mm-hmm. they'd have won this one. And nope, that wasn't going to happen with Bayern in this kind of mood in this game. In, in the last five games, Taylor, they've scored 20 goals. Ah, so it's the return of Bayern, basically. Yeah. 
Okay. They're back. And I think we're, we're seeing basically what we saw last season, which is Bayern having a, um, a poor Hinrunda the first half of the season and then having a very strong Rockrunda second half after the Winterpause. <laughs> that's... That's, that's how you got to say. That's some good Germaning from you, my friend. Uh, yeah, so we have, uh, as things stand, we've got Leipzig still top of the table uh, despite losing 2 0 on the road to Frankfurt. Uh, Dortmund, Leverkusen, Gladbach, Bayern, as we've already mentioned, uh, all won, meaning it mm. remains very tight at the top. The Dortmund game was Friday, so that feels like forever ago given the number of games that happened this weekend. Uh, let's stick with Bayern. Uh, I wanted to give thumbs up for the return of the Muller hello uh, for Bayern's second goal, Ryan. I'm aware that you may not be as familiar with this concept, uh, and I kind of forget how we stumbled upon it, but a couple different people on Twitter this weekend reminded us that this was a prime example of one of the things that we used to love about Thomas Muller. Can you have a guess as to what I might be referring to? So let's see. This is where Muller sort of... No, you, you're going to have to elaborate. Go on. <laughs> it's, it is not very helpful in terms of the description. It's basically the uh, opposite of an Irish goodbye, uh, where Thomas oh. Muller shows up without really announcing it at all and just happens to be in a spot that you did not expect him to be. And then he's there to score a goal. And in this case, it's a really smart run that no one sees coming, and it's definitive Thomas Muller that uh, is at the back post, wide open, unmarked, and somehow onside all at once. He just pops up out of nowhere without giving anybody notice. It's a Muller hello. So this is this is playing into his uh, his nickname as the Raumdeuter, the uh, user of space. <laughs> the, is that, the, no, the exploiter of space. Why are Germans so much better with words? They have some really long words as well. If you if you're trying to think of a German word, you just you just combine it, combine lots and lots of words together, and you'll basically get there. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> and you you have a, a, a master's in German, is that correct? No, I, 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 can, I can speak German, but um, <laughs> I do okay. I'm trying oh, to think can of you actually speak German? Like, I just assumed you were kind of like improvising on the fly. Oh, no, no, no. I, my, my dad was born in Germany. I can speak a, a, a decent bit of German. I'm not as good as he used to be, Taylor. But oh. uh, I'm trying to think of some examples of some massive long words. Like Fernsehschauspieler would be like TV show star, and that's all one word. They, they, they love combining things. It's great. Uh- I I want to know more about this, and I want to know the goofiest, <laughs> longest words we can think of. My parents uh, met in Germany when they were uh, not but teenagers, uh, both oh. of them the children of, mili- of military personnel. There you go. There you go. Nice. Uh, I, I do not have any German skills, though. I think my mom might still have a tiny, tiny bit. I can say Bundesliga. Does that count? Yeah. <laughs> Yours is still better. Yours is still better. <laughs> um, I don't have much else to say about this because Bayern Munich – were just so good on the day, had some phenomenal goals, had some good team goals, had some individual moments. Uh, overall, it felt like we are sort of rounding into Bayern hitting form. Dortmund, with the addition of Holland, seemed to have uh, solved some of their goal issues. Seemed like they're going to have a strong second half of the season. Mm. It's up to Leipzig. Uh, there's some rumors about players they're going to be bringing in this week. Uh, but that loss definitely tightens thing up, things up. Uh, are you expecting it to be a three-horse race all the way through? I think so. I certainly hope so. I mean... I'd say maybe a two-horse race. Is <laughs> yeah. that fairer? Yeah. Do you, do you want to you name your two in particular? Or you just want to leave it as that. Two of the three that we've mentioned will be in that race. Bayern Munich's going to be one of them. That's that, for sure. That is definitely for sure. Uh, and I hope, the... I hope Dortmund get out there. I mean, it's so tight at the top, as you say. They're four points between the top four at the moment. And uh, maybe two-horse race is a bit insincere. There could be more horses. I want to see more horses. And you know who loves horses? Thomas Muller. He's got several. See, again, you could tell me really anything about Thomas Muller, and I would believe you. Like, I'm sure that is actually true, but you could be like, he also has aardvarks. Be... Sure. Why not? <laughs> he, does, he does live on an aardvark farm, but also I think his <laughs> wife might be a horse, um, an equestrian specialist of some sort, if I'm not mistaken. I was really hoping, given that I just said I would believe anything you said about Thomas Muller when you paused there, I was hoping you were just going to leave it at that, and it was going to be Thomas Muller's wife is a horse, and that would have been oh, terrific. Boy. 
Thomas Muller just likes Bojack Horseman. He doesn't have a horse ready. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but it would be strange for Dortmund to be in that title race just because there's been that sort of conversation about Lucien Favre, about is he going to be let go? Is he the right man for the job? And so mm. if they kind of stay in there, I feel like those questions are going to linger. And it reminds me a bit, this isn't even meant to be as clunky of a transition as it's going to be, but it reminds me of the situation with uh, Barcelona, where Ernesto Valverde was uh, in charge of the club, had him top of the table, and yet no one was particularly inspired by his brand of football. No one seemed to really enjoy him. We haven't really talked about Barcelona since uh, he was sacked, since uh, Quique Setien was brought in. Uh, so let's move over to Spain uh, right now and talk about Barcelona's 2-0 loss, a result that sees... That wasn't a clunk. That was a really good transition. That wasn't clunky. Thank you. Thank that you. That was good. Thank you, sir. Thank that you. That worked really well. I, I try. I try my best. Because I am... I, I do want to talk about Barcelona. I watched this whole game. Uh, Barcelona fans, I promise this isn't just that thing where we only talk about your team when they're very, very bad, because I actually don't think Barcelona fans should be too bummed about this one, aside from the fact that with Real Madrid winning, uh, they go top of the table, Barcelona now second. Ryan, the thing that really stood out to me from this game before we talked Barcelona was Valencia's defensive rigidity. They reminded me of like peak Atletico Madrid defending hard mm-hmm. in the 4-4-2. Were you impressed by that one, or was that less enjoyable because you would have preferred to see a few more goals, a little bit more open space. Uh, I, I think they, they set up perfectly for this, and they set up perfectly for the, for the way Barcelona set yep. up. And I think you're saying that Barcelona fans shouldn't be too bummed about this, but I'm not sure I hold the exact same opinion. What, why, why is that? I think they set up wrong. Okay. The start. I think the three one four two. They mm-hmm. did. I know they probably had to do it out of necessity, but you got the, the the back three with Sergio Roberto coming in as a as another as a third defender, as a centre back basically, and it meant that the wing backs were basically Anzu Fati on the right mm-hmm. and Jordi Alba on the other side. And when you look at both the goals they conceded, it felt like it was due to the fact that they had a back three and they had no width in their defence whatsoever. So when you look at that first goal and it came on, it was a ball across that came along the floor and there was no no Barcelona shirt in a wide mm-hmm. position to get it. And then it pings back to the other flank. And once again, there's no Barcelona shirt there to get it. And Maxi Gomez puts the ball in you know, from a wide angle, albeit with a big old deflection from it. And, you know... Umtiti didn't cover himself in glory in this game at all, I think. He was very slow to close down on that goal. He didn't push out at all. And I think I think it was Antoine Griezmann who raced in and got there. And even so, there wasn't much pressure being applied by that Barcelona defence. And then when you look at the second goal, you've got Maxi Gomez in loads of space because I think Sergio Roberto's been drawn away from him mm-hmm. by Carlos Soler. Yep. He's got loads of space there. And Antu Fati, is, um, it, it, he's kind of 20 yards away from the action. He's, up, he's, he's halfway up the field. He has to sort of run back, and it's way too late. And Umtiti's once again a bit casual in that second goal. So I think they, in that instance, they had an overload. Valencia did, a three-on-two overload. Barcelona couldn't handle it. I thought the defence was spread really thin. And I thought at this stage of Kike Setien's uh, reign, to go with a back three, to go with this formation, to take a chance against a team like Valencia, who they know are dangerous, who they know are strong, I thought was a bit naive. So I do not disagree with anything you said. <laughs> um, Thank you. Because, and I'll, I'll get to like more why I don't think Barca fans should be too upset, maybe be a little bit upset, but I think you're absolutely right that the 3-1-4-2-3-1-3-3 at times uh, formation really didn't work. And I think a big part of that was, as you mentioned, those two wingbacks, but certainly Ansu Fati more inclined to get forward, or I think was told maybe start 10 yards ahead of where uh, Jordi Alba tended to start. But as a result, you then had Sergio Roberto tucking inside to be that right center back you've got that ton of space that you mentioned and I think the way that they I don't think this was intentional I think it was sort of 
a natural result of what had to happen is that Frankie de Jong, who is supposed to be one of your three main central midfielders, ends up sliding further and further out to sort of plug that spot. But now He went really wide quite a lot of the time. Exactly. But then what I kept noticing, especially in the first 15 or 20 minutes, is you'd see uh, Busquets and Arturo try to have quick little combinations, but they were clearly missing the third part of the triangle, so they couldn't ping that ball around as much. And that's where you saw Lionel Messi start dropping in more to try to kind of complement those two to give him that third option. But then once one of your strikers, who's supposed to be stretching the defense and, you know, it's Lionel Messi, he's always terrifying. When he's not there, you don't really have anybody else. And so you end up with sort of Antoine Griezmann running around and trying to create options, but you don't have the shape that I think they set out to have. And I think, yeah, then uh, Valencia more than happy to exploit those kind of vulnerabilities, those mismatches, and eventually uh, getting those goals and fighting for every single ball certainly doesn't hurt. So I I agree with everything you said. I think the reason why I don't have as much concern is because Daryl and I previously talked about how Kike Setien is sort of a devotee of what Barcelona and Cruyff and La, La, La Masia and everything they're trying to do, everything they want to do, Tiki Taka and, and Pep Guardiola and all that good stuff. And I think you could see moments of that in this game. You could see the the kind of patient build-up play. Maybe it's sometimes too patient and maybe sometimes a little too slow and you'd see some of that frustration. But the way that ball was moving, the way Barcelona would just seem very confident in possession, and then I think the introduction of Arturo Vidal and he instantly, by kind of staying more central, by making sure everybody stayed tighter, you could start to see those little combinations with Lionel Messi. He started to get some chances of his own, and I felt like uh, uh, Kike Setien made a, at least a smart change there to sort of try to bring more balance to the yeah. midfield. And I liked some of those adjustments, and I thought this looked more like kind of a historic Barcelona team. And so I think as they're able to kind of find their way through uh, sort of the park bus, low block defenses, uh, as they get a little bit better at that under him, I think those results turn around, and I think they, they play pretty soccer and score pretty goals would be my prediction. I'll give you that, and I, can, I certainly give uh, Setien credit for the intention here, which is that's a very attacking formation. Mm-hmm. But the problem is you need to do some attacking. Well, there's that. Which is what this team, <laughs> what, what this, this team was doing yeah. was. And I, I know that he's very much a proponent of the Cruyff style, you know, the beautiful passing. But here it was just lots and lots of passing and no real shots. There was 75% possession Barcelona had here. Mm-hmm. They had nearly four times as many passes as Valencia. And do you remember back, back, in, back in, with the Guardiola Barcelona team? Where the Guardian used to make fun of them, calling it the Spanish art project, where they didn't, where they like Guardiola didn't even think goals were important. It was all about just beautiful sideways passing, mm-hmm. and that's what this reminded me of. It was aimless. A lot of it was aimless, yep. and I think there's a lot of problems here. In that it's all very well trying to set up like this and trying to play that way, but when you've got midfielders who aren't advancing and who can't really advance very well, when you've got a huge hole with Luis Suarez, well, there's no man up top. I think that's a big problem. When you've got Messi, who's you know not not in the, the best of form right now, I think that all combines to make this not the ideal setup for them. Do, do and you, I think that, that, oh, I think also uh, sorry to jump no, on you there, please. but but like I, I I love that they stick with the Cruyffian thing, but also I think it has to move on. When you look at Guardiola at City, he's moved it on. He's added the high press in there. He's added mm. added the trying to get the second ball. He's added the intensity to it, and I didn't see that here. No, that, that that's a fair point. And it's, yeah, you're absolutely right that if you're just going back to like, it's like uh, remaking a movie and then going back to the original and being like, well, this is, this is what got us here, so we're just going to do it all over again, even though times have changed right. and uh, aesthetics are different and tastes are different. Exactly. I think I've said aesthetics three times in the show now. Uh, but like, I, so I think, I think it is sort of confusing, the reliance on that. And, and then I guess it's kind of confusing to me, the reliance on Lionel Messi, who is no longer the Lionel Messi that he was 10 years ago, still obviously mm. a phenomenal footballer, but maybe... 
a few more miles on the legs, a few more kicks on those legs. And I find this is the type of game where I find Lionel Messi so confusing because I know he's the best player in the world. I know he's incredible. I know he makes his whole team better. There's not even necessarily a butt coming. It's just that sometimes that like he drops in and stays stationary. And it's and I think it's deliberate. I think it's to try to pull opposition players out or take them with him or make them uncomfortable because now they've left Lionel Messi unmarked. But it's still there's just those moments when, yeah, you're right, the ball's moving around side to side, and he is just sort of standing there watching those passes happen and not really demanding that things change. And in that moment, I don't really know what to make of him because if that were, say, Zlatan, I'd be like, there we go again. Zlatan's not running. He's not trying to help. He's just kind of standing around because he didn't get the ball when he wanted. And mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case with Lionel Messi, but I do still have those, just those moments of like, why, why isn't he moving more? Why doesn't he want to run more? And maybe that's just his game and I am, I am uh, just being blasphemous. I don't know. You just don't understand him. That's your problem, Taylor. You don't understand what he's doing out there. He's, he's, he's playing 4D chess and you can't see it. That might, might, might well could be. I would not put it past but him. Also, he is Lionel Messi after all. He did have nine shots in this game. And you True. might notice they got zero goals. Also and that. can I... Can I I'm sorry to do this, but can I give a thumbs down to Being Sports and their highlights? Because I went back and watched the highlights package they put together of this. They put in like four or five messy shots mm-hmm. into Rosie, yeah. but didn't, they didn't include the penalty. <laughs> which Valencia won. Slightly, slightly important, highlights. that penalty. Uh, and thank you for bringing that up because, uh, yes, you can give me a thumbs down for that. I'm going to give a thumbs up to Maxi Gomez uh, for staying positive because yeah. uh, Valencia do get the penalty early on. Uh, Maxi Gomez takes it. He misses it. It's saved. A great save by uh, Ter Stegen. Then mm-hmm. he, he scores uh, for, I guess, the, the first goal. Maxi Gomez scores, but he shoots the ball does not go on target. It also doesn't go out of bounds. It's the type of shot that is rolling out. I think eventually would have been a goal kick, but it's kept in bounds. Then it's uh, crossed back in for him at the back post. He hits a volley. It takes a heavy deflection. It's still credited to him, although I think it was not going on frame, but he still gets the credit. And then for the second goal, it's just a beautiful finish that he hits really, really well. So it, it yeah. feels like it went from bad to like, okay, to like, okay, yeah, that was good. That was solid. So I think that's a solid trajectory for, uh, for your goal scorer for sure. Well, the interesting thing is that going into this game, there was lots of rumors that Barcelona were trying to buy Rodrigo Moreno, mm-hmm. one of the other Valencia forwards. I think they might have targeted the wrong dude, judging by this game. I mean, they, there were some really impressive players for Valencia in this one, and, and it's maybe a reminder that we should watch more Valencia, uh, because I, I mentioned him earlier, but I thought Condogbia was amazing. He has the go-go gadget legs that mean even <laughs> if you're by him, you're probably not by him, because he can still reach around and get that, just the little poke tackle, uh, but then also can maybe take some of the body with him as well. He doesn't mind a physical challenge, but I think you're absolutely right. Maxi Gomez was great. I think Rodrigo, when he does come on, uh, I think he takes the quick throw in that's maybe a foul throw, but whatever, but that leads mm. to the second goal and I thought he was impressive uh when he came on and caused some problems for Barca so yeah I thought so a great performance from Valencia uh less so for Barcelona but I still have uh faith that Kike Setien is going to figure some things out so do you think this is still a two-horse race this is the Liga title Taylor <laughs> we're going to go back to the Bundesliga question I think it's at least a two-horse race yes I, I'm pretty <laughs> sure it will be uh one of two teams at the top yeah. and it's obviously Real Valladolid or Leganes do you know I <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I wonder, I wonder if in the same way that um, losing Laporte has ruined Man City season, I wonder if losing Suarez is going to ruin Barcelona season. I think they, if they don't replace him, if they don't get a big man up top or, or use someone to that effect, they're going to have real problems. I, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I may have said this before, but I will say it again. Uh, like, Suarez reminds me so much of Roberto Firmino and vice versa in that, yes, like they'll score goals. Suarez tends to score like the bigger goals, in my mind at least, than Firmino. But they do so much 
uh, so much else. They do so much running. They do pull people out of position. They link up play. They stretch the line. They cause problems. They get in opposition uh, heads. And yes, I think to not have him in there, you could see the vulnerabilities. And you could see that lack of decisiveness, that just like pure desire to win and score that Suarez has and will thus demand a penetrating ball or a ball over the top or things move faster or his frustration, I do think, kind of motivates Barcelona. When you don't yeah. have that, it's, you could just see that sort of lack of creativity, that lack of final energy that you needed, that killer energy that you needed to get the result. And I, I think that may end up being the story. Then again, there's much of the season still to be played. We'll see how it goes because Real Madrid could always choke uh, and give some points up. And I would expect they'll drop at least a couple uh, over the course of the second half of the season. One would imagine so. By the way, just while, while we're talking mm-hmm. about Valencia, have you ever been to the Mestalla? No. I, uh, can we talk about it for a moment? Because the way it was covered in the pre-match was that it was essentially falling apart and dilapidated and no one fully understood why they still played there aside from <laughs> money and investment and problems with building. I could believe it, but it's just one of those bucket list stadiums I want to go to. It always looks so impressive. On yeah, film, it I looks think. enormous and beautiful, mm. and yet all of the narrative was about how bad it is. So I'm assuming there are people out there who are screaming that their headphones about how it's been covered for a million years. But uh, I, I would still like to go because it did seem like a, a pretty solid, solidly sized and solidly attended game for sure. Yeah, I'm always jealous of a stadium that doesn't have any roofs on it because <laughs> you couldn't do that where I come from. Uh, does it have any roofs on it? Well, it doesn't, there's only like one covered stand. Oh, I see. I see, but, but because, because they have beautiful picturesque weather. Exactly, yeah, because yeah. they're in a nice part of the world. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess a nice part of the world, though I think they still have some rules on their stadiums, would be Italy. Uh, let's move there now, despite a oh, lot the of... king of the six. I love it. I do my best. I try, I try. Uh, and I were... every time I jump on them just to tell you how much I love them, and I ruin them somewhat. That's why I'm sorry hey, about that. I, I appreciate the feedback, my friend. I will take it. <laughs> uh, it was another, like, uh, strange has been sort of the word today. It was a strange series of results in that the table didn't change much this weekend despite all three of the top teams struggling uh you had inter draw a 1-1 with Cagliari. uh lazio held to a 1-1 draw by roma seemed like juventus were going to start to pull away it seemed like okay here we go now Juve start to kind of create this gap they win all their games and then napoli managed to avoid losing their fifth straight game at home they win two to one uh over Maurizio sorry squad uh i loved chubby gattuso screaming his head off the entire time and pointing everywhere and applauding everything, and a lot of times screaming with hand gestures that didn't quite make sense. Sorry I was chomping on his cigarette, uh, as he is wont to do. <laughs> right? Would you, if you had one of them as a coach, if you could hire one of them to coach Charlotte, uh, who would you rather it be? Who would you rather play for? Do you go for the kind of, sorry, who I'm assuming has the intensity, but also has the kind of laid back, I'm just going to scribble like notes into my notebook while chomping on my cigarette filter? Or do you want the manager who's on the sidelines about to blow a gasket uh, trying to convey his messages? I think I want the manager whose style of soccer I could tolerate watching, so it's not going to be sorry, if I'm honest. <laughs> Good answer. So let's talk about why that was the case, because we have Napoli, as I said, 2-1 to one win. I want to say thumbs up uh, to Napoli's game plan, which I think was a mm. huge part of why uh, Juve were so frustrated. Uh, and the game plan, I think, can be summarized best as switch the ball always at the earliest opportunity every time, no matter what. And you could see Gattuso constantly putting two fingers together and then spreading them and then spreading them and then spreading them because I think the idea was spread them out, switch the ball, make Juve get stretched because they don't have a lot of width. And if we can exploit that, then we will exploit that. And so there were moments where it was almost comical of like the midfielder, would get the ball, 
he would turn and start dribbling up the field and then be like, oh, right, and then have to turn and play the ball out wide, sometimes behind his teammates because he had waited for a moment. And it was just like the slavish devotion to this approach was almost admirable, even if it was hilarious at times. Yeah, definitely. Full, full credit to them. And by the way, you describing him doing that with his fingers is, was gross. I don't want to hear that you ever, ever just make that <laughs> description again. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. But it's, um, I, I was expecting some fireworks from this game uh, based on the meeting between these two at the start of the season. Remember that 4-3, which was absolutely mm-hmm. bonkers, which got settled in the end by uh, Koulibaly getting the injury time own goal. Um, and this, obviously, the big narrative here was Mauricio Sarra coming back to the Stadio San Paolo for the first time since his unceremonious exit. He got mm-hmm. booed. He got booed quite loudly, which I was kind of surprised by. I think I think they wanted to set the tone for booze because he got booed. I would say the the order of of volume of boo went uh sorry third, Ronaldo second and then Gonzalo Higuaín like by some distance uh first yeah. for loudest boos. They got a lot of targets. I can understand that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean this this was another example of sorry mm-hmm. ball uh, get, getting some rightful criticism yep. in the, it just it's just a bit boring to watch when it's not in in its full flow i mean obviously the idea of his style is to you know the high press to try and force mistakes and it's quite possession based as well but it's the when you're in possession that's kind of the boring bit isn't it it's lots of short quick passes yep. most of them are sideways yeah and it relies so much on sort of your mid like like it did at um, you know the Chelsea with the, with the defensive midfield. It's got it relies so much on Pjanic, doesn't it, as a central role in this style. And I don't know. I was trying to think of why some of the reasons why Juve weren't quite up to scratch in this. And I was thinking maybe is it because the front three they were better recently, or certainly Higuain and Ronaldo were better recently when Ramsey was tucked in mm-hmm. behind them rather than Dybala. I think we had that conversation. Was it a couple of weeks ago when they played yep. Palmer? Yes. Um, so that was one thing that came to mind. But I don't know. I just think this style of play, it's, it's not doing it for me, Tay-Tay. It's not well, doing it for me. I think, I think the, the Ramsey point is, is fair. And it's not even a criticism of Paulo Dybala. It's that I think he was sort of asked to do two different things. I think at times, especially when Juve had the ball, he was asked, especially in the second half, to sort of be the right winger and try to stretch them out a little bit. But then as mm. soon as Juve would lose the ball... Or when they like when they were kind of slowing it down, he would then cycle back centrally and be that sort of number ten. But because of that, sometimes he's wide, sometimes he's central. You don't really know where he's going to be, and so I think Juve kept losing the midfield battle because Napoli, as I said, so intent on switching. Juve were trying to deal with that, but as a result, they weren't putting any pressure on those kind of central midfielders. So Diego yeah. Deme, for example, would consistently have time to kind of pick a spot, look for a pass, play that pass, and then there would be pressure. It would go back to him in the middle. And again, there wouldn't be numbers there. So I think Pjanic coming out, uh, that's the big reason why that happens is because they didn't like sort of what he was bringing to the table or not bringing to the table, but then he is the one who's supposed to run that midfield in sorry ball. So when you take that out, suddenly I found myself wondering, like, oh, is that a sign that this just has been completely wrong for them and they're abandoning it entirely? And that seems to be what ended up happening, especially since uh, Napoli then go get the two goals. you be able to pull one back. But I want to talk a bit more about Napoli's goals, if that works for you. Please do. All right. Because I think, though he will not get the credit for it, uh, 
Insigne to me was was the man of the match in this one. Uh, he has the shot that is saved, but then uh, knocked home by Zelensky. Uh, but it's a great shot. It's a dipping shot. Uh, Chesney probably should have done better with it, but still, he kind of creates that by driving at the defense, waiting for someone to close to him. And this is a good example of Juventus not being able to put any pressure on that. He's essentially kind of allowed to dribble and dribble and dribble until eventually he shoots, and it never really feels that pressure is never made uncomfortable. So I think that's why that first goal happens. And then the second one. I mean, come on now. That's, I think only Goretzka's <laughs> volley was better. But it's still a, a great little volley um, that he was able to uh, strike cleanly, puts in the back of the net, runs and celebrates with the fans that were there. Not that many fans. But I love this because not 30 seconds before, he was at the other end of the field hustling, making defensive plays. He draws a foul. Maybe a little bit uh, fortunate to get that foul. But that he was at one end of the pitch working hard, then scoring a goal at the other end of the pitch like inside one minute, I think was rather telling for the amount of work he was putting in in this game yeah definitely so and is it is it telling at all that the consolation Ronaldo's goal was a long ball in which he just got the feather touch on it which not very not very sorry yeah I mean it was it's a great goal maybe the goalkeeper should have done a little better with it but yes I think the directness of that one is a good reminder of you have Ronaldo maybe use Ronaldo in the way that Ronaldo wants to be used Exactly. Yeah, it didn't feel it didn't feel like quite fitting in with the uh, with the aesthetic they were going for. By yeah. the way, if Gonzalo Higuain had have scored their overhead kick, yeah, at the end, whoa! I think the stadium would have exploded. Uh, yeah, in in the Juve side would have definitely enjoyed that one. The Napoli side, I think, would have torn the stadium apart. So it would have exploded kind of for different reasons. Happen. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he. I didn't think this was another one where. Like, Gonzalo Higuain either looks unplayable and incredible or sort of, eh, I'm not really up for it today. And this seemed to be a meh sort of game from him. Yeah, not the only one. We'll talk about <laughs> Matthias Delict on that note. Um, Goodness, yeah. He, <laughs> he definitely had some, like, uh, a player who is not entirely sure of themselves in the way that he would kind of settle the ball and then pass it. But in this, like, I have settled the ball and I am now passing the ball. Like, you could see him thinking it through every time, which is maybe not what you want in those sort of moments that should be instinctual. It just seems like it's not the same person that we saw last season to me. Yeah, not he, in any way. He needs some isn't Frankie it, de Jong around him. His, his uh, yeah. the, the friendship heart uh, necklace has been split in half, and you need to unite them if you want them to play well together. <laughs> <laughs> or is it, com- is it confidence level? Do you think it's it's, it's something? There's something intangible which I can't quite see, and I, it, it got me wondering who who do you think's been the most the, the the worst value for money this season? Him or João Felix at Atletico Madrid, who's <sighs> really not justified his wage? I would argue. I would say uh, mm, that's tough because you could make the similar argument about both of them. I think it maybe is is Delict just because you expected him. To be this sort of rock solid center back, the next wave yeah. of Juve defender. And then, but also at the same time, it's Juve who are going to be dominant, who have tons of talent. And so he can sort of be bailed out by that. And for him to lose the starting job, he gets it due to injury in this game. But I think you would not have expected that. Whereas Jao Felix and the sort of tactical changes that we know Diego Simeone wanted to make this season or was supposed to be wanting to make this season, maybe it's forgivable that like, okay, they're still learning the new system, so you can't really fault him, even if he should be doing better. Whereas Matias Delict at times, I'm sort of confused about why he can't even settle a ball or trap a ball or complete a pass. Uh, yeah. some, some head scratchers for sure. Just feels, uh, yeah, is it just confidence? Is it that simple? I don't know. Um, well, so, uh, okay, if, if we're going deep on this, I would say it might just be confidence, but it is also the thing that I, I never really think about, and then when I do, I'm like, oh, right, that would probably be very big, is that 
you're a young kid and you're like moving to a new club who now have Maurizio Sarri there. And just if you don't vibe with the manager, I'm not even saying that's the case, but I'm just saying it's worth remembering all those things that factor into the way a player's playing. And if they're not enjoying life in Turin, I don't know if that's the case. Maybe he doesn't have like a good working relationship with Mauricio Sarri or he finds it difficult to connect. But I think about it being a job. And if you don't really like your new boss or your new boss is asking you to do stuff and you're not quite sure of it and it doesn't really play to your strengths or it's not what you used to do at your old job and now you're having difficulty adapting, like you would be low on confidence. You probably wouldn't want to go into the office. You probably wouldn't be pumped when you were asked to do a new thing because it's going to feel sort of strange to you. And I wonder if maybe that's it, that it's just a product of being really young that you've got to kind of learn to adapt and adjust and overcome those uh, obstacles. Yeah, maybe it's like you used to get donuts in the office on a Friday and in your new place you don't get them anymore and he's a bit upset about it. Is it that? That, I mean, that, that might well could be. And it is the case that if ever you want to make anybody happy, food is the answer. Because I remember moving from a kitchen job to an office job and being like, wait, we don't, get, we don't get free food? That's not – I have to pay for lunch now? This is unacceptable, and now I can't pass the ball anymore. And, uh, yeah, so that, there you go. I think now I get it. Maybe it's just that Matias Delic doesn't get the donuts he wants. You worked in a kitchen? Yeah, I was. There was a period of time. It might have been when I watched a lot of Top Chef that I, I was definitely going to be a chef and definitely wanted to work in kitchens for the rest of my life. And I worked wow. in a kitchen for about four months, and uh, that was it for me. <laughs> was it? Was it the being shouted at? What was? No, it? I can handle that. It, it genuinely was coming right out of college. It was all of my friends being like, "Hey, we're going out tonight," and I was like, "That's great. I'll be done in four hours. It's ten o'clock at night, <laughs> and I will be done at maybe two uh, when the kitchen closes." Uh, it was. It was not the the type of restaurant where like the kitchen shuts down at nine, and then I can have a normal life. It was definitely a. Um, you should take up smoking so you can get a 10-minute break because that's the only way you're going to get a break sort of uh, restaurant. Uh, and it was just, yeah, it was a bit, it was a bit demanding. It was a bit demanding. Oh. I was uh, frying things but still found it sli- slightly demanding. But I do still like cooking, but uh, maybe not as a professional career sort of thing. I've got to say, Chili's isn't the same since you left. <laughs> You're damn right. You're damn right it's not, Ryan. Um, one more game in Serie A to talk about. No transition there. Uh, they were. F- it was a spicy game, so maybe they were having some chilies. Uh, Roma won, Lazio won. Uh, I just want to say thumbs down to both goalkeepers in this game because it's, it's the Rome derby. You know it's going to be intense. You know it's going to be electric. I was waiting for the red cards. I was not quite prepared for the emotion to overtake the two goalkeepers, but it was nice of them that at least they both uh, made some howlers in this one. Yeah, the derby della crappy goalkeeping is what we should uh, call <laughs> that this is the new one. one. <laughs> that, is, that is a proper title for this one because you have for uh, Roma's goal, uh, Ed and Dzeko scoring it with a header, but it's a, a ball in, like a kind of diagonal ball over the top. Dzeko gets ahead to it from 12 yards out, uh, but uh, Lazio's goalkeeper, Thomas Strakosha, came off his line, I think thinks he's going to be able to make a play on this, but then it, it is sort of the cliche of if you're going to go and try to get that ball, you have to get that ball. It cannot, yeah. It's a Yoda moment. It's uh, There can't be a try. It's only do or do not or whatever. You can't come that far off your line and not commit harder than he did, frankly. Exactly, because otherwise you're going to get beaten to it, and then it's going to slowly bounce and roll into the net almost insultingly, which is uh, how that one ended up happening. So that but was that Tete, uh, mm-hmm. Paul Lopez at the other end, uh, uh, wow. some, eight minutes later, said, hold my beer. Yeah. I got you. Let's, can you talk us through it, Ryan? Because I'm still not entirely sure I understand what happened here. So, okay, if my memory serves correct, the ball came in from a corner mm-hmm. uh, and Paul Lopez punched the ball up in the air under very little pressure. Yeah, yeah. Whereas he could, you know, he probably could have claimed it. Uh, was was should, it going I mean, out at that point? Which time is my answer to that? Which time should he have claimed it? <laughs> 
Oh, so no, hang on. The, 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 when the ball came in, mm-hmm. the, the defense, uh, was it David Santon it headed was. the court? He headed it straight up in the air. He did. So first the ball goes up in the air there. Then, instead of claiming it, Lopez does a nice little punch into the air mm-hmm. under very little pressure, which rather than letting the ball go out of play, I think he was trying to stop another corner, wasn't he, mm-hmm. basically? Uh, but it made a very bad error in doing so and ended up getting Chris Smalling in his way and letting a Serbia just poke the ball straight in. <laughs> Almost through his legs. So, uh, and uh, the best thing about this goal was the Serbia sort of looking around, like, "Was that? Did I right? score? Is that <laughs> is that legit?" <laughs> and for the moment, it, for for a moment, it looked like he was like, "Oh, I, I I know that look." Like he thinks he got away with something. Like if we watch this replay, there's going to be a punch on Paul Lopez, or he did something that led yeah. to this, and it's going to get called back. And then no, it really was just uh, a Cherry being like, "Really? Okay, like I'll take it if you guys want to yeah. give it to me." <laughs> but the Paul Lopez decision, um, I've talked about this. Maybe not to you, but like my wife and I used to live in a, in an apartment that had pocket doors, the doors that you can kind of like like open and close, pull open and close. And uh, I'm sorry, what? Like, like, do you know what pocket doors are? They're in old houses where it's sort of like you can make a room into a room or you can sort of have like an open floor plan if you want to. There are these giant doors that you can roll together and then suddenly there's a wall there or you can roll them back and then that wall is open. Does that make sense? Is it like a... I'm just thinking of like a haunted mansion where you touch a book in the wall and it opens up. Is it <laughs> well, like that? I think it, they're called pocket doors because they like slide in, I guess. So you don't know they're there, but then, yeah, you can slide them back out. Oh. But sure, basically what I'll just say for the purposes of this story, I'll just say there was a door and I had like two full beers in my hands. The door was closed and I looked at the door, looked at the beers, looked at the door and just dropped the beers to open the door. And my wife was sitting like, what? What are you doing? And it's like, I, I don't know. That made sense in the moment. And all I can figure is that that's what Paul Lopez thought here. Because you're right. The ball's up in the air. It's a decent defensive uh, header by Santana that he puts it up in the air. So you know there's going to be time for everyone to adjust to it. And I think you're right. Paul Lopez just thinks, oh, no, I don't want another corner. I'll parry it back into my own box, which is basically what he does. That it's sort of yeah. in that moment in trying to save it from being a corner. He really does just knock it back into play and then creates massive confusion and a Cherby is able to capitalize. And then it's just not, not just creating that confusion, but not claiming it once again yeah. when it lands again. It's amazing. It's a credit to the Roma players that instead they all just kind of got mad at the referee and not, uh, and not him. Uh, Paulo Lopez definitely could have maybe gotten a few more shouts from his teammates. Uh, Chris Smalling just gave him the I'm not mad, I'm disappointed look. Yeah. Uh, and the game carried on. Finishes one-to-one, as I said. Uh, so some strange results in Serie A overall this weekend. But uh, nothing entirely too dramatic. No red cards, no uh, players in the stands, and no fans on the field. Uh, in this one, at least. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I can't talk about any more soccer until I get out of my head the image of you trying to open a door and in doing so dropping everything you were holding, <laughs> including liquid. Look, Ryan... I'm not smart, all right? I'm not smart. That, that should be abundantly clear by now. <laughs> um, one more thing to talk about while Ryan reflects on my brilliance. Uh, U.S. <laughs> roster changes. The U.S. men's national team, they have their upcoming friendly uh, against Costa Rica. They've trimmed down the roster slightly, started with 26 players. Paxton Pomacall sent home due to injury. That put them to 25. Now goalkeeper J.C. Marcinkowski will rejoin the San Jose Earthquakes. Uh, Jordan Morris, Christian Roldan will return to the Seattle Sounders ahead of their CONCACAF Champions League campaign. So mm-hmm. we're down to 23 players. Now we've got our kind of final camp. We've got the, the beginning camp, then the medium camp. Now we've got final camp, and then we've got the friendly. So of the players remaining, Ryan, we've got 23 are there any in particular you are excited to see when it comes to this iteration of the U.S. men's national team? 
Uh, I'll say off the top, I like the general makeup of the squad. Really? It's like a young and hungry uh, makeup. I, say, I think if I'm right in saying that only five of the players have got more than 10 caps. Mm-hmm. So I like that aspect of it. And I know obviously that's limited by the fact that there's no European base players, blah, 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 blah. But I do, I don't know how you feel about this play, but Paul Ariola. How do you feel about him? Because I thought the last few times I watched him with the US, particularly in the Gold Cup, I thought he's really solid. And mm-hmm. I know he doesn't, he's not necessarily a 100% first on the team sheet kind of player. But, you know, he's, he, 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 gets, he, gets in, he gets a few goals. He's really quick. I like the way he works on, on the wing. He's got a good work rate. One of the better players in the squad <laughs> for me. Is that, did I say that too hesitantly? <laughs> uh, no, the reason why I'm laughing, uh, I don't mean this to be discourteous, but the way you just explained Paul Ariola is perfectly encapsulating my feelings on Paul Ariola, which is like, okay. yeah, he's pretty good. He like has those good moments. You tend to talk about him like this. Um, it's, it's that he's, yes, he is, he's a scrappy player, but he has the technique. He can pop up and score some goals, but he is not really that player, nor do I think he's going to be that player who I'm like, yes, Paul Ariel is in there. Now I feel confident. It's sort of like, yeah, all right. I mean, yeah, that seems okay. Like it doesn't, he doesn't kind of inspire that next level confidence, that next level belief in the team, but he's right. definitely not one of those players that I'm like, oh, him again. It's right there in between. And I think your description of him is, is pretty good. So well done. He's, yeah. He's just one of those ones I like to see on the field. Yes. Basically. Uh, yeah. I think, cause you know, and at least from like, from a, like American perspective growing up with the 94 and 2002 teams that like he is a pretty good embodiment of works really hard fights for everything will get aggressive if he needs to will scrap but still has the technique still has a little bit of the goal scoring ability so I think he is like the old school USMNT player to some extent very good. How about you? Any, anyone you like? <laughs> I mean, I, I like that Ulysses Yanez is still there. We've talked about him a lot, uh, but I, I feel as though I am maybe falling into that thing of just being excited about the next thing because it's the next thing and it's and it's the unknown. But he is still in camp, has not returned to Wolfsburg. I don't know if we'll see him get any minutes, but anytime we've got young midfielders who seem to be proving themselves, who seem to have blended pretty well with the squad, uh, that has me feeling a bit more optimistic than I've been in the past. Uh, and I should add, I think I said there's 23 players. My math is great. 26 minus 1 minus 3 is 22. So there's 22 players uh, in there. I, I Can wonder I ask wh- um, a general question? Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt. What is your feeling in the general significance of January camp? I mean, yeah. I, 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 in terms of the broader USMNT picture, in terms of these teams, players coming away from their respective MLS campaigns pretty early before the season starts and... How, is it, how does this fit into the broader spectrum of the international game for you? So, Because I'm coming from a European perspective where this mm-hmm. doesn't, you don't kind of get this different kind of squad at a different mm-hmm. time of year, if you know what I mean. So I, I, I will give you my, my, my entire thought process, which is that initially, like many years ago, I was not a huge fan of it. It didn't really make sense to me. I wanted to see just the senior team with the core group of players. Berhalter has his own group now, uh, but back then I wanted to see sort of the U.S. at their top form beating uh, top form opposition. I didn't love the games where it was like the U.S. C-minus team playing Bosnia's C-team or Serbia's C-team or what have right. you. Then I sort of moved into enjoying it more because as we had quote-unquote stable is what I'll say programs under Jurgen Klinsmann, uh, it felt like, okay, so now we've kind of got that core group. It's established, but then like, oh, there's this kid who just broke through in Major League Soccer this year. There's this 24-year-old who's never really gotten a look, but now he's going to. And so it felt like a, a good almost trial national team program where you could go in, 
see like the the manager and the squad and staff could see what you were capable of and then they could decide if you kind of fit with where the project was going then maybe you'd get a call in into a more competitive friendly right where the program is now i think is why i sort of have less enthusiasm for the january camp because now it feels like we're still just trying to figure it out and so all of these players feel like they could be potential starters for Burhalter in the next six months to a year. And I'm not saying that's because they're particularly excellent or the program is even that bad, but just that it feels like there's so much sort of experimentation and we don't quite know, aside from some of the quote-unquote core group who came from the, the January camp and are in this camp, uh, some of them sent home, like Christian Roldan. But it sort of makes it harder for me because I don't know if this is meant to be like the heart of the senior national team going forward, or if it's meant to be a sort of tryout to see who fits in. And because I don't really have that answer, it makes me slightly uncertain about uh, where things are going, at least with this camp. Yeah, I think that was the heart of my question. I didn't know what this is meant to be in general. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, no, I guess I don't know either. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad we got your entire thought process on it, though. Thank you for that. I mean, yeah, I'm sure everybody loved it and didn't uh, zone out at all. But it's a a battle I have because Daryl is always very positive about the national teams, uh, both England and the United States, which is saying something because not everybody is always positive about England. Uh, But with the U.S., I think Daryl tends to be really excited and will find... A player like looking at the roster, like Brendan Aronson, who's a player he maybe knew a little bit about from the, from the union this season, from when he was in camp last time with the national team. But Daryl will get so hyped about him, and not even just like, I'm telling you, this guy's the, the next thing. He is the truth. He'll just be like, yeah, he's really good. He's got tight control. He can score a goal. And he brings about that enthusiasm that is really, really useful when you're talking about a team that you're sort of like ambivalent on. But if I don't have Daryl to maybe help me feel a bit more positive, I think I'd default to like, yeah, I don't know. It's a January camp. We'll see what happens. That's about where I am with it. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. There we are. So <laughs> so I appreciate you uh, being excited about uh, at least one player in this roster, maybe a couple more. Uh, but I think until they play their games, until we have more results, maybe we can bring this episode to a close. Uh, it was a strange weekend. There was FA Cup. There were big results. There were surprising results. Uh, maybe a return to normalcy next week when Liverpool continue to win. Yes, and that they shall. That they shall, Tete, because they are Liverpool and they are mighty. And that is the narrative. <laughs> that is the narrative. They are mighty. I thought you said my team for a moment. I was slightly confused. I thought you were bandwagon jumping right. Oh, can I, ask, can I just add one more thing? I saw you this may. fascinating thing that Liverpool, um, in their team photo they most recently take, took, had five mathematicians in there. You know, we have the, they, they have the, throw on coaches and they're doing everything really scientifically. Mm-hmm. they've got these five mathematicians whose job it is to turn, and I quote, turn every action on the pitch, a pass, a throw, a tackle, or a shot, into a goal probability. So I saw this little clip from the BBC of one of these mathematicians being interviewed, and they they break down like the shot percentages and like um, where on the field, you know, for example, mm-hmm. the kind of angle that, uh, let me think. So... Uh, like yeah. the, the, com- the coming goal, the coming from an angle, mm-hmm. there was like a seven percent probability of that going in from that angle, from what you can see. And they kind of use all these stats and mathematicians to f- inform what the squad does. So, say what we like about Liverpool, but they are doing stuff next level for sure. I'm. I'll say this as well. I am sad that this did not exist when I was in high school slash middle school because I could have used a professor saying to me, and maybe they probably did, and I just don't remember it. But I could have used a teacher saying like, "Hey." 
you're probably not going to be a professional soccer player. You're certainly not going to play for Liverpool. But if you get really good at math, one day you might be able to be employed by a big club who need your math skills. And that maybe would have focused me up a little bit more. Uh, probably not, but maybe. But maybe. Maybe so. <laughs> all right. No. Well, Ryan, I appreciate you appreciating <laughs> math. I appreciate you talking all things weekend with me. Uh, anything else to add before we head out? Just I'm still I'm still going to be thinking about the beers in the door for the rest of the day. But uh, other than that, thank you very much for your time, Tay-Tay. As well you should. Ryan Bailey, thank you. Always a pleasure. Never a chore.